If you make 10 moves per second, that's really fast, 10 moves per second, it would take an average of 137 billion years to solve it with random moves. Imagine how much more despair I would feel if my hopes and my dreams and my life and my sanity depended on solving this Rubik's Cube. Hey, welcome to Night Church, the Friday evening service of Praxis, the young adult ministry of the Loma Linda University Church. You're going to be hearing some great sermons, testimonies on this podcast that are going to encourage and deepen your faith. We are so excited that you're here, and I hope you enjoy this sermon, and so much so that you share it with someone that you love. Welcome. Good evening, everyone. How are you guys doing? Excellent. Um, I just want to do a quick trigger warning. Tonight I'm going to be talking about mental health. So if that's something that you deal with, um, I just want to warn you so you can get in that, that mood. So if that's something you're uncomfortable talking about, I just want to let you know and give you a heads up. My name is Derek. I am a student chaplain in the hospital. I have finished my academic stuff here at Loma Linda uh, School of Religion. 2020 happened. As you guys may be familiar with, 2020 happened. And so I have yet another year of unpaid internship. Um, gotta love those. So to survive, I'm also an ER technician. So I do a lot of wiping butts, a lot of patient movement, a lot of restocking, some CPR once in a while, occasional cool stabbings. I don't do the stabbings. I help people undo the stabbings. And it's a, it's a, a hard job. It's a good job. It's a very meaningful work. And I, I know that many of you guys are in the healthcare field. And so I have a lot of respect for the hard work that you guys do. So that's me. Now let's begin the talk. All right, I'm ready, I think, I hope. This last December, a professor of mine gave me an interesting task. He told me to look at the Bible, as one does in school of religion classes, and he said, choose one biblical character who is in a crisis moment, someone who is facing a really difficult situation, and then imagine that you are a hospital chaplain coming into that crisis situation and doing therapy with this person. I was like, that's very cool. And we had to write an essay about this. We had to, to actually write a verbatim, which is like where we say what I would say, and then what they would say, and then I would say what they would say. One of my classmates chose Mary the night after the crucifixion. Oof. Okay, got to careful the microphone. That's a tough one. That's a really tough one. What would you say to a grieving mother? What would you say to help her through that difficult night? Imagine that. That's something we do face. I remember the first baby I watched die. I remember the mother's crying tears. I remember the father's silent, aching pain on his face. That will always stay with me. That will always stay with me. But 
I didn't choose Mary. I actually chose someone else, someone we've heard a lot about so far tonight. Joseph, son of Jacob, not to be confused with Joseph, father of Jesus. This is the OG Joseph in the Old Testament, great-grandson of the patriarch Abraham. His father, Jacob, was a deeply flawed man. He was a liar. He was a cheat. He continually stoked rivalry between his two wives and their 12 sons. It was just a really messed up family. Early in Joseph's life, he began having visions. You guys might know the story. He would go and sleep, and he'd have this image of, of like him as this like sheaf of grain or something like that, and like everyone's bowing down to him. And he's like, hey, brothers, guess what will happen in the future? Y'all are going to bow down to me. And they didn't appreciate that. He was ostracized. He was mocked by his family when he tried to open up to them, when he tried to share this talent. Another issue with their family was that Joseph was the son of his father's favorite wife. Guys, don't have more than one wife. Just not a good plan. I can say that. Um, He was the son of of Jacob's favorite wife. And so Jacob would really just kind of like give all the nice stuff to Joseph. He'd give him the fancy clothes. He'd give him the Maserati. He'd give him all the fancy stuff, you know, like biblical Maserati, Um, like a fancy donkey. And his brothers hated him for this. They hated him. And this hatred boiled over the years. It boiled and boiled and boiled. And, and Joseph wasn't included in the family business. The family business was herding sheep. And so all the brothers would go out and they'd start herding sheep. And, and Joseph was left at home with his, with his dad, who just liked to give him stuff. But his dad wanted to check up on his brothers. And so he said, hey, Joseph, head out cross the country, go on your little fancy camel with your fancy clothes and daddy's money, and go and check on your brothers, see how they're doing in the family business. So Joseph goes out there. And you guys know the story. He was sent on a mission of welfare to his shepherd brothers, but instead of receiving him with open arms as a brother should, they violently seized him and threw him in a pit. They threw him in a pit. Different translations call this different things. One of them calls a cistern. I don't know if you guys run into cisterns very often. That's a daily part of your life. Um, A well. You might know what that one is, although most of that is not even really a part of our life anymore. I had a well in Montana um, where I grew up, and we were very proud that we were not on city water. We were on our own well. The only problem was that we lived next to cows, and the cows pooped, and the poop had a bunch of nitrates, and then it went into the water, and so we were drinking basically like really high nitrate water. That has nothing to do with the sermon. Back to the sermon. Okay, I grew up in Montana. I had to, you know, plug that right there. He's stuck in this dry well. I imagine him sitting there. You know, it's kind of dark. It's dirty, maybe a bit damp. He hears a snake slither by. But he's sitting there looking up at the, the mouth of this well, at the mouth of the pit. And I imagine the sun going by, and he contracts the hours as the sun crosses the mouth of the pit. And he's wondering why. He's wondering, what is going on? These are my brothers. Like, <laughs> this must be just a joke. They must be just trying to teach me a lesson. He was helpless to climb out. 
He was helpless to convince his brothers to set him free. He was helpless. He couldn't do anything. Hours pass, and suddenly a rope falls down in the pit. Hope blossoms within Joseph. His brothers have not abandoned him. They're going to set him free, but this hope turns to panic when he realizes the terrible betrayal that his brothers are about to, going to do to him. They sell him into slavery to their own cousins, the Ishmaelites. Remember Abraham? He had two sons, Isaac and Ishmael. These are their cousins. So they take Joseph, they sell him to their cousins who are happening to travel onto their way to Egypt. And so, shell-shocked by this dramatic transition, Joseph finds himself serving as a household slave in a foreign country to an Egyptian nobleman. Days pass. Weeks. Months pass. He begins to get settled. He begins to prove himself. He works hard. Over time, he begins to heal from the trauma of that pit. It's still there, but he's beginning to heal. He's beginning to establish a life. And then, yet again, he finds himself cast into yet another pit. Just as life was getting better, he was unjustly thrown into prison for a crime that he did not commit. I can only imagine his discouragement, his indignation, but mostly, again, his feelings of helplessness. He did everything he could, and yet here he is again in the pit. As I sit with him in this essay, as I sit next to him as the hospital chaplain visiting, or perhaps the prison chaplain visiting Joseph in this Egyptian cell, I can hear him say, no matter what I do, no matter how hard I try, I always find myself back in the pit. Back in the pit. I resonate with Joseph. I know the feeling of helplessness, I know that feeling what Joseph must have felt as he sat there in that cistern, that well, engulfed in darkness. I know the feeling of helplessness he must have felt in that Egyptian slave market. And I know the helplessness that he must have felt as he was again cast into yet another pit, this time the pit of prison. Many of you may know this feeling of hopelessness this feeling of powerlessness, this feeling of impotence, that no matter how hard you try, no matter what you do, no matter how much effort you put in, you are incapable of setting yourself free, incapable of saving yourself. I want to explore this feeling for a second. That's why I brought a Rubik's Cube. When I was a kid, um, I don't really remember it that much, but I just remember receiving a Rubik's Cube as a gift. Perhaps it was a birthday party. I remember receiving it, and I remember being so afraid to mess it up. I'm good. I, I, I want to have my hands, you know? Thank you, though. I appreciate it. I remember being so afraid of messing it up. I knew that once it got messed up, I could never put it back together again. It was overwhelming. But then a friend at the birthday party grabbed it and started mixing it up. I was like, no, you ruined it. You ruined my perfect 
Rubik's cube? I guess, I don't know how that works. What's a perfect Rubik's cube? What's a perfect anything? Man, okay. He grabbed it, he started twisting it randomly, and soon it was just a mess of clashing colors. I remember working on it for a while. I was able to solve one side. I was really proud of myself, and then all of a sudden, as soon as I started working on the next side, I messed up the first side. I tried and tried, and eventually that Rubik's Cube sat on the shelf. Uh, I was surfing the web in preparation for this sermon, as pastors do, and I decided to look up how long it would take to solve a Rubik's Cube randomly. Just turning things. It can't be that many combinations, right? Just making turns, making turns. I can do this. I'm sitting in the pit. My life depends upon it. Let's make those turns. Let's see what happens. According to one Reddit mathematician, <laughs> they told me in college I couldn't quote Wikipedia. No one said anything about Reddit. And I, I honestly do believe this. They were citing an article that was like, uh, who knows, maybe it was a news article. That's even better. Um, <laughs> if you make 10 moves per second, that's really fast. 10 moves per second, it would take an average of 137 billion years to solve it with random moves. That's 10 times longer than the age of our universe. Imagine how much more despair I would feel if my hopes and my dreams and my life and my sanity depended on solving this Rubik's Cube. That's the feeling I want you to imagine. That's the feeling of the pit, helplessness. No matter how fast I turn this, no matter how long I live, no matter how perfectly I live that Avenus Blue Zone diet, I will never be able to solve this Rubik's Cube. Hopelessness, powerlessness, despair. I can point to several pits in my life, three struggles that left me feeling hopeless, helpless. The first pit I experienced was addiction. In my early teenage years, I began to cope with feelings of loneliness after a really difficult move from Montana to the city I dealt with this loneliness by binge-watching TV shows on the family computer for hours and hours every night. I would stay up till 2 a.m. every single night, 3 a.m., 4 a.m., 5 a.m. Over time, I became dependent. I was a zombie all day at school. I didn't make good friends. I didn't make connections with people because my life was dependent upon this addiction. I felt empty and anxious all of the time. I lied to my parents. I remember just being a compulsive liar. They, I kept this habit completely secret from them. And so I was living this double life. I guess it makes sense I'm a Gemini. I, I don't know what that means, but I know it's, it means I'm a two-faced liar. But um, I lived a double life, though. I was stuck in this, this habit. I was stuck in this, this addiction. While this might not seem 
like a serious addiction to many of you guys. Like I, I know there's much more serious addictions that people deal with. But when I was a teenager at 14, 15, I had like, I didn't feel like I had friends. I had lots of friends, but I felt like I was alone. I felt like I was lonely. And so I turned to this and I became dependent. I remember wanting to be free. I remember wanting to live a real life in the real world. My friends were all great at basketball. I'm six foot four and I'm terrible at basketball. And I wanted to be like them, but that meant getting up at 6 a.m. and going to the gym. I was just barely done watching Netflix at 6 a.m. Did I hear an amen? (laughs) No matter how hard I tried, no matter how hard I prayed for freedom from this addiction, no matter how much I hated myself, I couldn't get out of the pit. I sat there without hope for years. The second time was an even darker, deeper pit. In high school and college and in grad school, I suffered from severe depression, anxiety, and I was eventually diagnosed with obsessive compulsive disorder. I felt overwhelmed by obsessive guilt. No matter how many self-help books I read, no matter how many new counselors I looked for, no matter how many pastors I awkwardly approached with difficult, complicated, complex questions, I could not find my way out of the pit. I could not pray my way out of the pit. I sat there helpless. Year after year, it was dark, it was scary. I prayed for freedom with all my heart, and yet the darkness, the pit, persisted. Weeks turned into months. Months turned into years. And years turned into a decade. Back in prison as a chaplain there, sitting with Joseph, I wish I could say that God would fix everything. I wish I could tell Joseph to just trust in God and that he would be free in no time. But if we continue the story, we see that Joseph was forced to sit in prison for another three dark years. When we read the story of Joseph, it's easy to skip over those years. It's easy to skip to the point where Joseph is made vizier over all Egypt, second only to Pharaoh. We skip to the gold chains. We skip to the chariots, to the reunions and the happily ever afters. But by skipping the dark years of Joseph's life, by skipping that suffering, we paint a picture of following God that is all rainbows and butterflies, all miraculous deliverances from dark pits. But we forget that Joseph was a slave for many years and spent three long years in a prison before his deliverance. We forget that the tribes of Israel spent 400 years in Egypt as slaves before the Exodus. We forget that God was silent for 400 years before the coming of Christ. We forget the 250 years of American slavery before the Emancipation Proclamation and the 150 years of racism since then. We forget all those who have felt the deafening silence of God. And yet, and yet, suffering does end. Suffering will end. Joseph's time in the pit did come to an end. It took years and it took much endurance, but all suffering will pass in time. 
Despite my feelings of hopelessness in that first pit of addiction, years went by. I got to a new situation. I was surrounded by new people, new rules, new environment, and I was freed. No more issues. Despite, despite the tangling net of mental illness and a decade of persistent hopelessness, some of which you guys have witnessed here, I have been freed from the pit of mental illness. Amen. I'm going to set aside the notes for a second and just tell you guys about this. So um, I'm happy. I'm content with life. Like, I, I have an, actually an app on my phone. I got an Apple Watch because I was getting super healthy and stuff. And I track my happiness day by day. Most days, I'm like, like <laughs> I'm a little bit frowning face. But like, <laughs> like, a lot of days, I'm a little bit happy face. And then I had like one really happy face when I saw my brother last week. Um, but like, so, so I'm not saying I'm like joyful all the time. I'm not crazy happy all the time. But I'm content. And in comparison with the darkness of that pit, it's real. It's real. And my story isn't that I came to Jesus and, and my mental illness went away. I think that's actually one of the reasons I struggle with mental illness is because this narrative that you can't get help, this narrative that Jesus is supposed to solve all your problems. You know, I went to mental health care. The big change for me was when I was diagnosed with a mental illness. When, when I was told that what I was going through was not a spiritual battle, but a mental one when I was told that I couldn't think my way out of this, when I got on Zoloft, when I got on meds, when I started serious therapy, and ultimately when I did EMDR, that was excellent stuff. If you want to know more about that, talk to me afterwards. I went through conventional mental health stuff, and that, over time, over five years of serious hard work and excellent counselors and some really awkward moments on the phone with my mom when I was suicidal two years ago, I'm happy today. I got out of that pit. It's weird. It's kind of, it's kind of like sometimes I, I think that maybe like I'm on the edge of falling off again, but I, I realized that I've had several, even the last few months, like triggers, serious triggers that were like could have sent me into two years of OCD, like one issue that I struggled with for two years. And it was gone in four days. I was like, whoa, this is great. So uh, my message, I'm going to get up back to my message, but this brief Improv, I have lit, written right here, improv for a second. Um, my message is to like, get help. It's great, guys. Wonderful. But ultimately, I'm trying to say that I'm happy and content. And in comparison where I was two and a half years ago, when I called my mom and told her, I'm thinking of killing myself. I'm not there anymore. It's amazing. It's like seriously amazing. Um, all... All suffering ends, but it is rarely over in an instant. In the New Testament, some 1,500 years after Joseph, the Apostle Paul was suffering from something that he called a thorn in the flesh. We don't know exactly what this thorn was, but we know that it caused Paul great suffering. And yet when he prayed to God for deliverance, he said, God, take this away from me. God's response was not a miracle. His response was a reminder. God said, quote, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. In this context, I think that God's grace means his gift of hope, that hope that would pull Paul through this suffering. One day, suffering will end. One day, your suffering 
will end. One day my suffering will end. That may be in the morning after a good night's sleep. That may be in a day. It may be in a year. It may be in a decade. It may even be in the next life. But suffering will end. Sitting with Joseph in that jail cell as the chaplain, I still don't know what I would say. Maybe I would reaffirm his resilience. He was a strong guy. Maybe I would encourage him to to find and hold on to a small sliver of hope that could pull him through this. Maybe I would tell him to look into his past and see the pits from which God had already delivered him. The same is true for the third pit, the one I'm sitting in right now. Maybe the one that you are sitting in today. The trap that seems impossible, the the puzzle too difficult to solve. Expecting immediate deliverance will only leave you disappointed. Expecting immediate deliverance will only leave you disappointed. So today, I'm stuck in another pit. Like, I'm serious. Like, I I have another pit I'm stuck in. It's not nearly as, as deep or dark as the other pits. And yet it feels no less difficult, no less dark. I feel powerless. Yet this time I have hope. I know that if God can deliver me from crippling, crippling addiction, from suicidal thoughts, from severe obsessive compulsive disorder, God can help me with my current predicament. As the psalmist says, weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes in the morning. I have the privilege of knowing some of you here tonight. Some of you guys are new faces to me. Yet I know something about all of you. You all are facing or will face the despair of Joseph's pit at some point in your life. I don't know what that pit looks like for you. It could be a broken relationship. It could be a financial crisis. It could be failing grades. It could be an ominous exam. I've heard a lot about step. It could be religious doubt. It could be social or romantic isolation. It could be a discouraging medical diagnosis, or like me, it could be mental illness. Whatever you're facing, I know, I want you to know that you are not alone in these feelings of hopelessness and powerlessness. Expecting immediate results will only leave you disappointed, yet I can promise you that the pit may be deep. Though the circumstance may leave you feeling powerless, deliverance will come in the morning. Suffering never lasts forever. I ask you today to trust that just as God delivered Joseph from prison, just as he delivered me, he will, in time, deliver you from the suffering and from the darkness surrounding you. Thank you. Hey, thank you so much for joining us for the Night Church Podcast. We really are excited for where we're going, and you can help us in that mission. There's a few things that you can do. Number one is just stay connected. So if you want to follow up what's going on in the young adult ministry here at Loma Linda University Church, follow us on Instagram at Praxis Ministry. And then the other way to really build from this is to financially contribute. Your donations make such a big impact. And so if you go to lluc.org slash give, 
you can connect with Praxis Ministry there on a one-time gift or a reoccurring commitment. It makes such a difference. Well, we love you, care for you, and may God bless you richly as you take theory and make it into practice.